over time, culture, the development and relationships with your players, the investment of that time has moved further and further back on the menu. This is For the Love of the Game, hosted by old school college soccer coaches, Ralph Perez and Ray Reed. Between these two, you're listening to 81 years of coaching college athletes, nearly 900 career wins, five national championships, and approximately 17,546 names in their contact lists. On this show, Ralph and Ray talk with some of the greatest pro soccer coaches and players in the game, but exceptional youth coaching is key in helping them find their places in the leagues. So this week, Ralph and Ray are talking with Rick Jacobs, the all-time winningest high school soccer coach. Rick has coached players that have ended up on the World Cup and Olympic teams, and in the English Premier League, German Bundesliga, Scottish Premier League, and the MLS. And they'll be talking about how creating a championship culture at a young age prepared them for their success. Here they are, Ralph, Ray, and Rick. Obviously, your resume is second to none. 23 state championships, six number one rankings, 131 game and beaten streak, and the all-time winningest percentage in high school boys soccer, 94%. So there's a lot of material to go over. We're going to cut to the chase. One of the biggest things you've done everywhere you've been in business and in football is create a championship culture. At UConn, we were fortunate to probably have eight or 10 of your guys. Right. Our theme for 25 years was our family versus your team, which obviously we stole from you in St. Benedict's. You were big into team culture. I remember the tennis ball. And for lack of a better word, you built a great culture by using different props. Can you talk to the listeners a little bit about team culture, how you developed it at Benedict's and some of the different uh, mechanisms you used to achieve that? Yeah, thank you. and. Uh... Ralph and Ray, excited to be here. You mentioned our relationship. You also mentioned the boys that that left, young men that left Benedict's to play for you. And then we, you and I, as we became friends, talked about the importance of culture. And I, I think that really, for me, started well before I got to, to Benedict's. When I started coaching club ball, <laughs> Back in 1997, as a volunteer, when I was still working for Adidas, I organically, I think, stumbled over the importance of culture. And look, over time, I realized that just like anything else in life, I think success really is about relationships, whether or not it's on the field, whether or not it's in a classroom, whether or not it's in a company. And as you both know, Trust is the cornerstone of all relationships. And so what I found was critical was even though tactics and techniques were obviously important and fitness, that for me, it was about gaining the trust of my players and developing that culture, which I think is a used a word that's thrown around much too much nowadays without being backed up with all of what goes in to actually delivering it. So the culture for me and for coaches uh, has always been an everyday thing, guys. It's always been delivering that culture. And you can have words. You can talk about it in preseason. You can put up banners and signs. 
The question is, are you delivering on that culture every single day? That's the hard work. That's the ability to get your players to trust you and to understand that you're valuing them as good people first and then hopefully, you know, as good players second. So, look, we had a variety of ways that we determined we were going to, as you say, Ray, use props. But what I would use, the word is manipulatives, just the same way that in a classroom you would use blocks or numbers that kids could hold on to and, and grasp in a meaningful way. At Benedict's, I determined that it was important for guys to understand the rituals, the history, the tradition of where they were, the shoulders that they were standing on of other guys that had come and been successful. And then I asked them to give of themselves to develop this culture for each particular year. So for instance, you suggest, you know, our family versus their team. We also had an overarching theme that was maturity and discipline. Now that was the overarching theme for every team. What we developed was also a yearly culture of whatever a phrase might be that could attach that team to their specific year so that they could be a part of the fabric of what it was to play at St. Benedict's. I mean, you tell me if you'd like to speak to one or two of those and how they came about, but it's probably a long answer to that overarching theme of culture. How about real quick before I kick it to Ralph, the tennis ball and what it meant? Yep. So the tennis ball was, again, something that I stumbled on. It was a story that I read. There was a Brazilian youth soccer team that was preparing for a, a youth world championship. The coach got all this disparate group of individuals together from Brazil that were different colors, different shapes, different sizes, spoke different dialects of, uh, of Portuguese, and uh, and there they were all either of wealth, not of any wealth. And he got a great team but they were all over the place. Nobody liked anybody. Nobody listened. And what he said was he came to a meeting. He gave each player a tennis ball and he said, I know you're all different. And I know you basically don't view or see the world the same, nor the game. Write your name on this tennis ball. I want you to bring it to practice, bring it to games, bring it to meals. So if there's not one thing that we can weave through all of us, the commonality between us will be this tennis ball. We'll have that in common. He used that as a manipulative to say, here's who we are as a group. Let's come together and use this as the one thing that binds us. It may seem like it's it's silly. I think the message was clear. They ended up going on and winning. And like Fabio Capello said when I saw him 25 years ago, hey guys, as coaches, he said to a group of us, we're all really thieves. We all just take little bits and pieces from somebody else, weave it into our own culture, and then hope it works for us. So I stole that. I stole that from, from that team, and we used it at Benedict's uh, for years and years. Well, Coach Jacobs, being a Long Island guy and, and then moving to New Jersey when the league started with the Metro Stars in 1996, I became very familiar with, um, you know, St. Benedict's Prep and success of the program. We like to believe, Ray and I, that Brown Long Island 
as a public school has had tremendous success as well. But I guess the question I always ask successful coaches, because I look at your streak, I look at the Anson Darns' streak in, in college soccer on, on the women's side, and then where I went to school, only on to state, they had a string of 101 games. And the 101 game was winning the national title at Oneonta State. So my question, I've asked those two folks there uh, the same question. How do you get the team to not worry about the streak and the success? Because every day you go and play anybody, there's a target on you because of who you are and your success. Yep. It's a great question, Ralph. And my answer, because I've answered it before, and those great coaches, as well as you guys know, I think one of the hardest things in coaching is to not get ahead of yourself and to be able to keep your head down and focus on the next training session. What we used to call at Benedict's, we didn't call it actually training. We called it match preparation because we believed that every day that we were together, we were just preparing for the next match. And I believe the training kind of was detached a little bit and it gave you a sense that you might be able to take some time off, be a little lazy. And we just didn't stand for that. And so your question about how do you do it, I think it's because I got my players to invest just in the next next match preparation that we were together. And I, and I used to say to them at the beginning of the year that I, I needed them to trust me. I mean, it's the cornerstone, obviously, as I said, of all relationships. And getting them to trust me and say, look, let's take care of today. If we take just all these todays and stack them on top of each other, I'm telling you that the staff and, and I have a plan of the fact that this can be successful in 20, 25, 26 games. I think the pressure gets to be real if you don't say to them, let's just worry about winning today. It's an often used comment, and but I think if you – if you start to look at streaks and you start to worry about consecutive championships and all that, you're going to screw it all up. But I actually believe as a coach, it was probably the hardest thing for me to do was to keep my head down, just believe in working today, and then getting the players to do the same thing, Ralph. You know, I mean, it's it's amazing. I, I think when – you know, Ray ran through all those accolades that you've achieved. But I guess the thing that always is important is even if you have great talent and a great team to continue to make it great. That's the thing that we all are trying to do if you're fortunate to have a good team or a team that wins. So what would that be your advice to the uh, the coaches that are out there now that are learning the trade, young, yeah. young guys. I think you've, again, you've touched on a real sweet spot of mine and important. Look, the ability to be good in anything once in a while, guys, you can stumble on that and gather good players and be successful here or there. I, I, you know, that culture, I think, is an underpinning of what you're talking about, Ralph, which is, which is consistency and being able to deliver it over time. Of course, you need to have, you know, good talent. I always felt that when you got a group of guys 
for instance, at Benedict's and all, you know, an all boys school at the time, or whether or not it's young ladies, that if I got average talent, my job as a coach was to deliver a good team based on the technique, the tactics, techniques, fitness, and the psychology of winning that I thought was important. If I got a really good team, I thought it was my staff and my responsibility to deliver an excellent program. And if we were excellent to begin with, which we were a lot of times, it was my job to deliver the number one team in the country. So I think a coach's ability to get their players, as I said before, to trust, to be able to each day, look, I would say Father Edwin at St. Benedict's said to me years ago that he was not going to call me a coach until he believed that I had earned that moniker. I'm telling the two of you something that you already know. I think the landscape today in all activities, and soccer is one of them, has too many trainers. It has people that come, they teach the game, the tactics and the techniques, but they don't invest the time in the player ahead of time to be a good person because then when they ask them to give the extra mile, when it becomes that big game, the player doesn't do it because they've not had that coach, that trainer, invest the most important thing that we all own, which is our time. And if you invest all that extra time in them as people, I think you'll get the great performance or the best performance when you ask for it. Rick, you've t- touched on culture. What do you think, besides that, what were the key points when you were building St. Benedict's Doctrine? Like good coaches, like people who get it. You guys sweat the small stuff. You've got to sweat the small stuff. You've got to pay attention to details. You've got to make your players understand that every day in training may be the last time they're going to play. And quite frankly, we know that it might be. And so I held my players and my staff held my players to a very, very high standard. And I wouldn't budge. And there were days that they weren't crazy about me the same way that guys aren't crazy about you sometimes. But I would never drop the standard. And I would ask them to hold themselves accountable, hold me accountable, and our staff accountable every day. I would also tell you that one of, I think, although there aren't secrets, I think we all know the question is, do you want to do it? I was always prepared to say when I blew it. So if I treated a guy poorly in training because I had a bad day at work or I was in argument with my wife and I came and, and you know, took an inch off somebody, I always used to say, I don't know how I can expect them to apologize to me or their teammates if I can't raise my hand in front of the whole team and say, you know what, yesterday when I took a bite out of Steve, that was wrong. And I apologize for that. I'm going to try to be better. I think that kind of culture gives them a sense that, okay, this isn't some guy talking down to me. He's prepared to to own his mistakes the same way he wants us to own ours. So I think that accountability is not taking yourself too seriously, not being afraid to make mistakes, and being able to call yourself on it when you do. I think that a lot of coaches don't give players 
enough credit for how smart they are. They know when we're being stupid. They know that when we're not telling the truth, when we're being a faker, and they read through that, whether or not I believe if they're eight, 18, or 28. So I think that naive nature on some coaches of saying, you're not fooling them. They might not say anything about it, but they know when you're being authentic and when you're not. Well, today I uh, spoke to congratulate one of St. Benedict's best players. I won't say the best because there's so many good ones that have come out of there, but I spoke to Tab Ramos and our, our past crossed together with the 1990 qualifications for Italy and then that team itself. And then I was blessed to have him with the two years I was there with him and the Metro Stars. And then that friendship really grew after he stopped playing. And we've had some great conversations when I came to New Jersey to see family over the holidays. And the question that I always ask Tab, and we all go through that, when you stop playing and you've had some players who have been on our national teams, Olympic teams, under 20s, under 70s, you name it, the whole gamma. And then many of them have gone on to coaching and, and, and been successful and coached at the highest level, as we know with Greg Berhalter. But the question I always say to young coaches is that the transition from going now, stop playing to coach. And Tab said it best to me when he asked his coach in Spain, the guy goes, coach, you know nothing. You know nothing about coaching. So the first thing you better do is get a coaching license and you better maybe get a youth team and practice that trait. So my question for someone as successful as you and all the players you've had, uh, what, what can we tell or what would you recommend for whether the person's going to go and coach youth soccer or is going to be now a high school coach, JV, varsity, or a freshman, or even go into the collegiate level? What would you suggest for them as, as a, a starting base? I really think that it it goes back to the following. If you've been – look, the beauty of me is that I wasn't a great player, and so – it would sound like a great story, but I think what I became was a good listener and a good reader of my players. And I understood Ralph and Ray, because I wasn't a great player, I understood what the 20th guy on the team was thinking. I knew how desperately he wanted to play. I engaged him every day. I asked him what he was thinking. I told him that I appreciated his effort. I asked him to hang in there and there would be minutes for him. When you make divisions of your team and you elect to subconsciously not engage everybody in what you're saying, you're basically saying, I don't need all of you and I don't have to have you all come along for the ride. The, but the work that's going on behind the scenes, the clicks that are forming, the conversations that are being had, the people that let go of the rope when you don't even know they're letting go of it, I think is dangerous. So as, as young coaches that aspire to be at whatever level, it really doesn't make any difference, right? It's just being the best you can be at whatever level you're at. I, I really think that it's the trying to understand where they are in their game. You certainly need the ability to, to teach technique, to teach tactics, to, to be able to deliver fitness. But I will tell you, and thanks for actually taking me there, Ralph, because 
In 2022, and I've had this conversation with other people, analytics, heart rate monitors, nutrition, dieting, periodization schedules, all of what the new age of science can bring us to make us better players. Now, I may be, I don't think I'm alone, but that's okay. Today, I'll go there. I believe that over time, culture, the development and relationships with your players, the investment of that time has moved further and further back on the menu. And I believe that because you can't touch it, because you can't read it, because you can't analyze it, it becomes that thing that some coaches know how to deliver it, some don't, some don't value it, some value it, and they can't deliver it. And I've worked with college coaches recently who are a licensed coaches who say, can you help me? I know that this is important. I just don't know how to do it. So for those young coaches, along with all of what goes in to be able to deliver the game, I do think that there's always, and great coaches around the world without name dropping, we know how they deliver culture. We read about it all the time. Why isn't it good then, you know, for all of our coaches? And the the nugget that I'll drop on you is I read Sir Alex's book called Managing My Life years ago. And I found a, a portion where the 1999 team had won the treble. And they asked him about that team. And paraphrasing, Sir Alex said, people think that tactics and technique win football matches. At the end of the day, men win football matches. And that galvanized ability to deliver a fighting spirit of that group is what allowed us to win that championship. So I'm not suggesting that one is ahead of the other. I just believe what, what we're talking about today is critical to the long-term success of a team. Rick, for our listeners, can you mention some of your former players, what they're doing now, and what separated them from other very good players? Look, I'll, I'll go back to Tab. So I always say that I got to St. Benedict's Prep because of Tab's success. Tab left before I got there, and Father Edwin then determined that there was something brewing after Tab was just so fabulous at what he did. Father Ed was kind of mesmerized, as was the student body. So Tab is the reason that I'm there, because of his success. But I still count Tab, obviously, as a soccer alum and a Benedict's alum. Tab's new position uh, at, at Hartford and his ability to to move his way through MLS and national teams is, is, I think, fabulous. I think Tab, if we use Tab and Claudio Reyna and Greg Berhalter as three of the most famous alums, I've watched each one of them kind of reinvent themselves over time. And I think the reason is because they became good listeners. They never thought they knew it all. They were willing to learn. I remember Claudio, when he got finished playing, you know, are you going to coach the national team? Do you want to coach professionally? And Claudio said, coach professionally? I, I don't know what, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Like I'd have to go back and be able to do what I needed to do with respect to licenses, learn how to be able to 
provide the game to my players. And Greg said the exact same thing. Tab as well. So there are guys that I think respect the game and respect the process of what it takes to, to get downloaded on being a coach, not being, as I said before, a trainer, and then kind of really um, you know, polishing the craft to where they're as successful as they are today. Claudio, obviously, in running Austin, Greg with our national team, and now Tab, obviously, with Hartford. You've had other great players, Matt Chadlovich and Paul Malloy, Roberto Vargas, and all those three played, obviously, for me at UConn. Yep. All successful guys, mature guys. Yeah. Good players. Maybe not at the level of a player, a Burhalter and a Ramos and a Reina, but very good players. What do you think separated those type of guys? Yeah. So that's the conduit, guys. That's the conduit to success. The Chavoviches and the Vargases who, who didn't play professionally. But here's the – there's no secret, but here's the, here's the path that I took. Ultimately, when we're all done, the hope is that the game allowed us to have these relationships, have these friendships, and I believe the success of both of you as well as countless others, is when you're finished, how many players stay in touch with you? How many guys email, text, call? How many care about what you did for them off the field? So the Chavloviches and Vargas's, the Malloys, as well as Tab, Claudio, Greg, hundreds and hundreds of others, here's the success. Was the message delivered to them the right way at the beginning? I would suggest it is because now, they're good fathers, they're good husbands, they're good sons, they're good brothers, they're good friends, they're good teammates. I mean, that's what this is all about. If you, you know, we know that if if you miss it and you're chasing medals and trophies and all that kind of stuff, like that's that's crazy. I mean, sure, we've all had our success, but I, I think the success comes because it's been front-loaded as it relates to relationships first. And those guys that you mentioned are not any more or any less successful as the other guys that have had and are having significant impact, you know, professionally on our game today. With your success at, at, at the high school level, was there any offers or any opportunities to leave that level, maybe go to the collegiate level, maybe even the, uh, somebody asking to join them in the professional level? So uh, the the answer to that is yes. Uh, after our success over years at Benedict's, ultimately, I was involved with the process at Rutgers for their men's team. Did not get the job. Uh, and I believed that as the coach and in Jersey and what I could bring that uh, it was a, it was at least a decent shot. At some point, you know, life gets in the way and you make a determination with your family and your kids that and, and the difference that you think you're making where you are, you decide to just continue what you were doing. So I was at Benedict's for 25 years. That Rutgers opportunity came up at the very end, as did what my ultimate leaving Benedict's was for, which was to work for uh, the Philadelphia Union and uh, Nick Sakevich, who was the managing general partner, became a friend of mine, and Nick was putting an ownership group together and putting a management team together. And so I spent six years at Philadelphia Union in the um, operations there, 
foundation club development and enjoyed my time there with that group. Oh, they've done a good job with that whole that whole group and the academy and they certainly have. Yep. I think and, their uh, vision, their vision for the future, you know, everybody today, no matter who it is, everybody wants stuff instantaneously. You know, there's been a huge investment there made in capital and in people. I think the fruits of that are now, you know, it's as my father used to say, you know, you can try to hasten slowly. You know, everybody wants it to happen right away. But here they are, you know, 10 years later with a fabulous youth system and, uh, you know, uh, an excellent team. And Jay Sugarman and that group uh, have stayed the course and are, you know, that's bearing that fruit now. No, you're 100% right. And a matter of fact, was I had a player that his dad worked for the U.S. Ski Association, Finn Gunderson. And I see him at the convention. I said, what are you doing here at the soccer convention? And he explained he was working for Philadelphia and right. they brought him in. So I, yep. I think that uh, a lot of a lot of pro clubs now, I mean, that, that whole thing, getting someone like yourself involved who's been successful working with young players is a, uh, was a great hire by uh, Nick Sikiewicz. And uh, Yeah, thank you, yeah. I'm sure I remember we ran into each other and you you said you were really having a lot of joy and passion with with that as well. Yep. So, and I actually still try to support and help either youth teams or individuals or or clubs, colleges with this developing a championship culture because it's you know I, I think one of the other words that's used too much today is passion, you know, you need to find your passion. I'm not sure I believe that as much as I believe that I think you need to find your purpose. I think your purpose is much different than your passion because I think a passion can be a flame out where a purpose is like you guys, your purpose is helping and developing the game and working with people to, you know, use the game as a conduit. And I think I found that purpose, which has been, you know, extended over all these years. So yeah, grateful for that. Rick, and I know a little bit about this. I may be off base, so correct me if I'm wrong. Talk about your professional life for St. Benedict. I believe you were with Adidas and at some level involved with the Cos the old Cosmos with Pele and them. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that was uh, thanks. That was a hundred years ago, which is nice. <laughs> um, but uh, prior to going to St. Benedict's, I worked for the Adidas distributor in New Jersey, and one of the fun parts of that job was being the promotional director for North Jersey in soccer, which took on the Cosmos kind of as a client and delivering to the players there. And it was a fabulous time of 78,000 people in Giant Stadium on a Sunday afternoon of which you guys would know that probably 70,000 of them didn't have a clue what they were looking at. But because it was the Erdogans and you know, CBS radio, I mean, music, that that was the thing to do. Going to Cosmos games was the thing. It became an awesome opportunity. And I did befriend Pele and Beckenbauer and Carlos Alberto and Kinalia and had times with them and watched the game, you know, go from the green parking lot of Giant Stadium now to, you know, hosting another World Cup in, in 2026. So um, that was a fun time that kept me in the game while I was coaching and then uh, uh, this kind of unique opportunity to go to St. Benedict's popped up and I had no 
interest or real desire to think that that was something that I wanted to do. But sometimes life gets in the way and you kind of trust yourself. And I have a, I have a wonderful wife, three beautiful kids and fantastic uh, friends as a result of the, of the game that uh, that's been so good to me. It's funny with the Cosmos, Ralph's, Ralph's brother was my high school coach. And when we were in 11th, 12th grade, we'd meet him at the high school, load in a van and drive down on Sundays in the summer and watch the Cosmos. And I, I often laugh about this because, you know, people will be like, well, you know, back then, and I'm like, well, it was 78,000 in July. It was 90 degrees. And as far as I know, Jersey Shore was still there. People had, <laughs> people had the option to go to the shore. Yes. Yeah. We sat in the Meadowlands on turf where it was like 105. That's right. Some of the best players in the world play. Yep. And, and, you know, Ralph's brother would take us, we'd get there, we'd play pickup, go in, watch the game, come back out, play pickup, everybody leave. And, uh, it's funny because our listeners won't understand this, but maybe four or five years ago, we took the team down, play somebody in Jersey, John Dealey and I, and we put the movie in the time of our life about the Cosmos. And 15 minutes in, the guys asked us to turn it off because they really didn't know what they were watching. Really? <laughs> yeah. But you had great, you had great access. I mean, God rest his soul. Mark Brickley was involved with you guys. Mark Brickley, yeah. Right? Yep. You, who else? Uh, yep. Phil, Phil Mushnick from the New York Post. Yep, Phil Mushnick. I would also tell you, I get even goosebumps thinking about it. There was a guy named Charlie Kessel who was just, he, let me take just back because that's really unfair. Charlie was the equipment manager and one of those fabulous guys that connected with everybody. Everybody knows how integral those people are to your staff. They need to be treated with the same respect that everybody else is treated. Charlie was wonderful. Pepe Pinton, who was, you know, Mr. Cosmo uh, at that point and ran the camps with Giorgio. He was a whole North Jersey thing on his own. So I would say the same way that the three of us are characters in a in this kind of soccer, you know, movie, those were guys who were characters, you know, as well. And then, you know, the Ricky Davises and the Warner Ross, and I'm watching. I'm watching Kinalia in the tunnel at Giant Stadium 30 seconds before he's going to run out, smoking a cigarette, saying to me, Rick, I think I will score two goals today. And I said, that's awesome, Giorgio. I said, but you're you're smoking. He goes, of course I'm smoking. And I said, why are you smoking? He goes, because I am Giorgio. Then he would push it out on the cement wall, and he'd run out in front of 78,000 people, and he'd score two goals. I tell you, for people, for our listeners, a little bit of education. Phil Mushnick tells me when he's covering the Cosmos for the New York Post, the editor comes to him, wants to take him off the Cosmos beat and make him the beat reporter for the Yankees. He says no. He says I want to go, and then he tells me the stories back in the day of the Cosmos and at Studio Fifty Four. Dude, they were they were the Yankees and the Jets and Giants of today before the Yankees, Jets and Giants. You want to talk about, and it's not necessarily for today, but just as a funny anecdote, because you guys know some of the people I hope that, that listen might, but when Bogey, when Bogey played for the Cosmos and, and he was the same guy putting the cigarette on the wall with Kinalia, he owned a place called Bogey eight on route three, about two miles from giant stadium. It was a restaurant bar. And let me tell you something. The good news is that nobody wants to tell those stories. 
<laughs> those were those were times in players. I mean, you think about that team. That was that was Los Galacticos well in advance of Los Galacticos, right? Sure. You know, same kinds of world class talent with world class stories to boot. We're we're at a game. We'll get back to the question real quick. We're at the game, sitting at a game with down low. Beckenbauer yells at Esky Escadarian. Yells at him. And Deals and I are sitting there in high school. And Eskandarian's not listening to him. And one was sitting with some um, Armenians. One of them stands up. Andernak, listen to the Kaiser. He knows. <laughs> but, I mean, it was great memories from oh, football. Absolutely. And you were, you were with Adidas during that point in time, right? Yeah, correct. I remember. Yeah, I remember just in two sentences. I was in a locker room. This is the truth. I remember that Kinalia, after a game, almost had a fight with a guy named Pele because he was convinced that Pele wasn't playing him the ball enough. I mean, Kinalia, God rest his soul. If you knew the guy, you know that he's capable of that. He was awesome, but he didn't care. He would just tell Pele he wasn't playing him enough. I mean, it's almost like a fairy tale, but it's it's true stuff. Yeah, it was great. It must have been a great opportunity for you to be with Adidas and then deal with the Cosmos. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. Ralphie? Well, I, I just want to say that um... – you know, when we listen to someone who's lived the game the way you've lived it, coached it, and many of the things that you've done besides at St. Benedict's, what do you see yourself as you go now into another adventure? You know, because obviously you're not with the union anymore. And what are you, what are you doing on your, I guess, your spare time? Yeah, my spare time is still working full time. So working a totally different business, which has... Somebody said to me a week or two ago, they go, wow, Rick, it sounds like you're having fun where you're working now. It sounds like you've re reinvented yourself. You know, that's an often used phrase. And I thought about it for a second. I said, no, I'm actually not reinvented. I believe I'm using the same skill sets of coaching and mentoring and developing a culture to the group I work with now, helping and supporting in business development. So I'm excited about that. I still and passionate about the game, purposeful about where I can help either players or coaches or teams. And like I said, I, I, the game will always be, you know, such an integral part. We live our life through the lens, you know, of the game. So it's been, it's been great. I got no questions, Rick, but on a selfish note, I want to thank you. Thank you for what you've done for the game. You affected my career at UConn with, delivering so many big-time players. You know, the national team head coach is one of yours. Claudio Reyna is one of yours. Tab Ramos, one of yours. St. Benedict's. You did it in a great way. You did it with class. Your teams always played the right way. They were organized. They were disciplined. And, you know, the game allowed me to get a good relationship with you. And, uh, obviously, top priest, Father Ed. And I can't thank you enough for what you did for me at UConn. And, and the, more importantly, the friendship and the relationship we had. And, and really thank you for coming on the show. Well, I appreciate it. And I will tell the two of you that the joy of the game is just this today. Reminiscing and talking and being with two guys who have themselves given so much, you wouldn't still be doing what you're doing, you know, if, if you were fakers. And, and the game either has players or fakers. And you guys are not. I appreciate the the opportunity to, to spend time with you today, and uh, it's been uh, really rewarding.
Thanks for listening to For the Love of the Game with Ralph and Ray. Be sure to leave us a review and follow this podcast on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk with you next time.